barbarians at the gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above Dongcheng District in Beijing. And with me from across the city, still inevitably as Beijing wrestles with its COVID conundrum, is David Moser. David, how you doing? Doing actually very good. As you say, uh, here we are. I'm st- this, I don't know how you describe the recent Beijing uh, situation, but but semi-lockdown probably still would be the most appropriate word, I, I suppose. My little Xiaoqiu uh, here, my little residential compound, has been pretty tight with the not allowing people in. And also a lot of kids now during the day running around because they can't go to school. And so I feel sympathy with their parents up there uh, in the apartments with the kids there all day long learning online. But the the scuttlebutt on uh, on my WeChat group that this this whole little community is on seems to be optimistic. Evidently, the municipal ruling is that if you can go seven days without any increases in cases or zero cases, then you can start to re- release people from the lockdown and let, allow people into the compound. And, and they said Chaoyang has just reached seven days. So looks like the light at the end of this tunnel is coming, but uh, there might be many other tunnels that we have not encountered yet. Yeah, at this point, this kind of slow-moving lockdown, lockdown light, lockdown by a thousand cuts, however you want to kind of refer to it, does this particular round seems to be slowly easing, but it's still a case with restaurants are not doing in-person dining. There's all kinds of restrictions. If you don't have a COVID test with taking within 48 hours, Starting from this month, you won't be able to get on the subway system. You won't be able to enter any places. And, you know, there's every time we have one of these waves come through, the restrictions come in and then some of them get relaxed, but not all of them. And of course, you know, none of the restrictions as they're currently in place really would do much the next time there's a another variant that comes in. And of course, you know, with each wave of variants, they get more and more contagious. And so they're really, I think the, the biggest issue for most people who live live here is that we just don't know when it's going to end. You know, it is, it's great that this particular moment is over. And of course, there's a lot of people in Shanghai who are, you know, seeing the sun for the first time in two months. But does this mean that, you know, it's going to be fine until I guess we got through Omicron, whatever the next one is, and then what? Right. Well, we're not doing a podcast on the lockdown today, but just a quick question, just to check, because I haven't talked to you about this. The Shanghai situation was a disaster in terms of PR and in terms of attitude towards the government. Is your is your assessment the same as mine that actually the Beijingers were a lot more patient, a lot more uh, on board, and uh, as things loosen up, are actually not too too unhappy with the way things were, were administrated. I think people were just glad they weren't locked up like plague-infested rodents for 60 days. Everyone in Beijing, at least in my WeChat group, every time someone complains, it's like, well, it could be worse. You could be in Shanghai. And that kind of ends the conversation. That is the um, the metric for all satisfaction and happiness is how is the other person doing in, in, in comparison to me? So yeah, I think you're probably right. They saw they had a, a model for contrast and they said, hey, we didn't turn out too bad after all. So I think you're right. For those people who I know who live in Beijing who are here, I mean, whether they're Beijingers or they're people who are heavily invested in the city or have deep roots here, whether it's family or others, a lot of those folks are kind of in a, we got to make the best of it sort of thing. You know, like this isn't ideal, but it could be worse and we're going to get through it. But there are a lot of people 
who are here and don't have those deep roots or are here on contracts that are coming to an end or they have other options. You know, many of them are, you know, obviously international residents, but there's also quite a few people who are born in China, but who have foreign passports, who have opportunities overseas. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, what started as a trickle has become something of, a, of an exodus. And there are certain sectors that are going to be hit by this more than others. Such as the sector we're in, the educational sector. Uh, lots of things to talk about here with the, uh, the effects of, home, of uh, online classes, the exodus of trained teachers, students, the uh, pessimism of the college students who are just graduating. And also the the foreign um, foreign uh, schools, the international schools, that uh, risk losing some of their or a lot of their foreign faculty. I, I can't obviously. I mean, I don't know everybody in the com- in the community, but it is just striking to me, even more than 2020, even more than 2021, the number of people who just come up to me and like we're just having casual conversations. And these are people who some of them I would have qualified as like the lifers. You know, the people you like that were they were like they were going to be the ones to turn out the lights kind of thing. And yet some of these folks are still saying like, yeah, you know, don't tell anyone. But uh, yeah, August, I'm out of here. And, you know, you're like, whoa. Those are some folks who I thought would never leave. And if I'm a, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a 27 year old teacher on a three year contract for a school in Beijing, and the last three years have been this, this is like the last year of my contract. Yeah, you know, this is totally anecdotal, but I, I've talked, I talked to some teachers who are like, yeah, you know, we've got like half, like almost half the faculty, or 60 or 70 people who are who have already said they're not going to renew their contracts. And there's stories of lots of teachers who are kind of like. Yeah, don't tell anyone, but uh, I'm doing a runner. I, I'm not saying anything because I don't want to lose my last month's salary, but I, I just can't. I just, you know. Or the other one I hear a lot too is it's like, I, I have a summer break coming up. I'm going to go home and see my family. And you know what? If I get COVID and I can't get back in, uh, I feel badly about that, but not that badly. And so if I'm a school, you know, an educational program or a school that relies still, and of course that's not all that many programs anymore, but still there are quite a few that rely very heavily on international talent. You know, I got to think if I'm administering that program, I'm like, what the hell am I going to do when, when school, when the students start to show up in the fall? To talk about these issues, uh, we're, we're really glad to have on this edition of the podcast, somebody who really has been involved in the Chinese educational system, but not just the Chinese educational system, but the intersection between the educational system here and global trends in education and international study. And that's Jiang Xueqin, who's been a teacher and educational consultant who's worked with schools throughout China, particularly focusing on things like creativity, collaboration, critical thinking skills. And David, uh, you're, you're the one who invited uh, Jiang Laoshi to come talk to us today. I was just wondering, maybe you could talk a little bit about where, how you got, how you know uh, Jiang Xueqin and, and uh, how you came about inviting him to uh, be our guest on this, ish, on this episode. He was, he was first uh, introduced to me through the Seneca podcast. Kaiser, Kaiser Guo, our mutual friend, invited him on to talk about similar issues. This was more than 10 years ago, so the issues have changed quite a bit. But I was impressed with him, and then um, I invited him many times to speak and give seminars at the CET program that I was academic director for, and we had visiting uh, faculty from different universities who were specifically studying the Chinese educational system. And he proved to be an excellent expert with very good English and very good grasp of a comprehensive grasp of all the issues 
and also very in touch with uh, Western curricula and Western ways of teaching and is dedicated to bring some of the best of those to China. So he's really a perfect person to talk about these issues. Uh, one thing I, I, I really appreciate about, about Jiang, about Jiang Xueqing, Jiang Laoshi, is the way that he engages with both a Chinese audience and an international audience. You know, he's written two books about his experiences working in the school system here, and he still writes for both like the New York Times Chinese website, but also, you know, has his writings have been in, you know, overseas publications, you know, the Wall Street Journal Chronicle of Higher Education. And I think right now, we, you know, we talk all the time on this podcast about like the information decoupling. And it, I, I always look forward to an opportunity to talk to people who are doing their best to kind of keep those bridges open, to keep those wormholes open at a time when it just seems like all those connections are being broken. And of course, with education being just so important, because if we don't want this current state of affairs to continue another 20, 30 years, we got to think about, you know, what's being taught in the schools here today. And of course, you know, how that, how some of those things or some of those factors are also relevant to what's happening in educational systems around the world. I mean, certainly, you know, looking at the, what's happening in U.S. education with books being pulled from the library and parents criticizing teachers for teaching history. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, well, let's just say there's a certain wing of the American political establishment that does not, I don't think they quite realize just how much they have in common with the Ministry of Education of the People's Republic of China. And I, I suspect the People's Republic of China Ministry of Education isn't quite, if they saw who, who am I most alike in this picture in the United States, I think they might also be a little bit upset about that too. So when we come back, we'll have Jiang Laoshi, Jiang Xueqin on the line, and we'll have a conversation about what's happening in education. So Jiang Xueqin, good to see you. Long time no see. Thanks for having me, David. So we were just chatting a little bit. You said the, the Gaokao, the college entrance examination is coming up soon. You know, that's one of those things about the Chinese education system that's very much in flux, very dynamic. A lot of my foreign friends tend to think they have a, a sort of a stereotype about the Chinese educational system that's very rigid and sort of highly structured and sort of antiquated and so forth. And I said, no, actually, the Chinese education system is one of the most dynamic aspects of Chinese society, really. It's always changing. So do you want to maybe give us a brief over, start with the Gaokao of the sorts of revisions and the, the, the change that's gone through, and then also just the, the changes in Chinese education in the last few years under, under Xi Jinping and COVID? Yeah, sure. Um, again, thanks for having me on, uh, David. So the Gaokao has seen many... Um, uh, many major revisions these past um, 20 years. Uh, the Gaokao is administered locally by each province, and we are seeing some differences in content material. So uh, before, the Gaokao was more of a holistic examination, so it's testing for basic academic skills, and now it's, it's now being transitioned to be more like the A-level exam examination, so kids can pick certain core competencies, certain key academic areas, and show proficiency in them. So it's more aligned with their interests. And the goal is to make the um, make Chinese students uh, much more diversified uh, because the Chinese economy is uh, diversifying. Um, these past five years, I would say that the major push in Chinese education reform is towards equity 
to ensure that each and every child is able to receive a decent education. 20 years of very strong economic growth has created a very strong middle class. And unfortunately, because the middle class has been so strong, a lot of education opportunities have been skewed towards the middle class. And what I mean by that is that middle class can afford for the kids to go abroad. Middle class can afford their kids to go to private schools. And middle, school, uh, middle class parents can also afford for their kids to get private tutoring. Last year, there's a major crackdown on all three of these advantages. Uh, private schools are under a lot more scrutiny. Uh, private tutoring, the industry has basically disappeared. Yuming Hong, the man who founded um, New Rental School, he's now selling things online. He used to be this yeah. test prep king uh, in China, and now he, he makes money. <coughs> you know, he, he spends his time um, selling things online, um, usually agricultural pr products. But that industry has been destroyed. And we're talking about millions of people who have been laid off. There, that's been a major clampdown on the, on the education industry here, here in China. So um, it's a, very much a sector in flux. We, we expect to see a lot more changes over the next couple of, year, a couple of years as China moves towards a more equitable uh, school system. What about the other uh, changes in curriculum, the content? We see news, news stories about the more ideological content, and then also things like removing foreign textbooks as much as possible, and maybe a, a demoting of English, uh, the importance of English uh, in, the, in the curriculum. So what about those aspects? Yeah, so these changes have been happening for at least four or five years. The motion of the English uh, language instruction, as you mentioned, the limiting of foreign textbooks and foreign teaching materials inside a classroom, especially in the uh, compulsory education period, which runs from grades one to nine. China is making it harder for foreign teachers to come into the country. So we're seeing um, major limitations on that front. So I, I would say very broadly speaking, that in the, for the past five years, we are witnessing a major value shift from one that focuses on teaching students to be globally competitive to a more self-sufficient school system. And what I meant by that was that, you know, five, five, five years ago, there's a major emphasis on getting kids to go abroad, on um, encouraging the opening of, of international schools in China, on uh, encouraging Chinese-Western education partnerships. The, the goal was to help with the education of globally competent Chinese students who could speak English well, who <clears throat> were creative, and who, uh, were, who could bridge the cultures between China and, and the West. Because of certain geopolitical realities, for example, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, coronavirus, uh, the, Russian, uh, the, the recent Russian invasion of, of, of Ukraine. Um, Chinese policymakers are recognizing that China needs to become much more self-sufficient. Um, when we mean self-sufficient, we mean it in three aspects. One is a more self-sufficient economy, so creating indigenous uh, innovation ecosystems, especially in microchips. So fostering te te technological innovation within China. Second is a more self-sufficient culture, one that encourages students to take pride in uh, Chinese traditions and heritage and be more suspicious really of Western values. So we're seeing for the past five years a major prol proliferation of the teaching of Guoshui or Confucian classical education. And self-sufficient also means um, self-sufficient self students. So students who can grow their own food, cook their own food, and who are physically strong. So starting September this year, all schools, both public and private, uh, need to ensure that students are able to grow their own food, cook their own food, 
They're able to do 3D printing. They're able to do simple home repair. For example, repair the, the air conditioner, to clean the rooms. And they all ought to do this by grade nine. I don't know how they will accomplish this, but this is now a requirement from the government. So we're seeing a major move towards self-sufficiency here in China. I, I want to talk about ideology in a moment, but I'm just fascinated by the mechanisms that, how do you get 12 year olds to clean their room and enforce that at a public school level? Uh, you know, again, I, I, I readily admit I'm the only person in this podcast who does not have children. I do have a niece and nephew who are roughly that age. And I, I know that my sister has a hard time getting them to do just about a lot of things, although they're great kids. But on a, on a school level, how are they going to try to, uh, on a curriculum level, how do you how do you evaluate this? I mean, what's the the mechanism to evaluate or to ascertain that students are hitting their marks, not just for academic achievement, but also things like cleaning their room, cooking family meals, being a good citizen, and apparently air conditioning repair? Right. Great question. So I would say that 30 years ago, the major instrument of political indoctrination and control in China was the Dan Wei system, right? The work unit system. Dan Wei could control who you could marry, um, how many kids you could have, what you did at home. And now, because the Dan Wei system has basically collapsed, China uses the school system as a major tool of political indoctrination and control. So I'll give you an example of this. Uh, a, a, few, a few years ago, Ch China um, mandated that students be more physically active. And at that point, I asked the same question you did, which is like, well, how is China going to do this? And so they, make, they made jump roping a requirement on, on the examination. So when you go out in the streets, you're going to see kids jumping rope all the time. Parents watch them, and the kids are just going to jump rope for, for hours and hours. And they're very good at that. So I, I think that's what's going to happen, where um, when kids take the examination, they're going to have to show proficiency in certain tasks. I don't know how they will do this in detail in, pra in, pra in practice, but, but, that's, but that's where we're moving towards. You know, it, again, these are goals that were just announced like a month ago. Again, I have no idea how they will actually implement this in the curriculum. But if they make this part of graduation, then, then you can be assured that parents will make their kids clean their rooms, repair air conditioners, cook family meals, learn how to make sweaters, uh, learn home repair. So, so, so as long as they make this part, part of the examination, part of the graduate requirement, part of the criteria to get into a good university, Chinese kids will become very good at that. I, I'm really struck by your point that the schools have kind of replaced the work unit as the primary nexus for in ideological education, if we want like a kind of indoctrination. And in terms of history, I look at this kind of moment, and we talk about the tension between Chinese values, Western values, or Chinese values, international values, the tension between self-sufficiency and a kind of cosmopolitanism. And the, the two things that immediately occur to me is, one is thinking back all the way back to the 19th century and thinking about the debates that went on between those who wanted to open up more schools for training people for practical purposes, for language instruction, for engineering, and of course, the, the pushback from more conservative members of the bureaucracy about the dangers of sending students abroad or bringing in foreign teachers or learning foreign languages. And of course, 
the formulation that got thrown around and, and we, we still somewhat talk about today is the whole like zhongti, xiyong kind of thing. And the problems of trying to actually make that work in practice in the 19th century, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily resolved in the 20th or 21st century either. And then the other historical moment I, I keep thinking of, and this kind of goes back to the ideology, is the extent to which that if schools are going to be the nexus of ideology or ideological education, it goes both ways. Because one of the things we're hearing about, and I think it was articulated particularly well by a recent article written by the American writer Peter Hessler, who just spent some time in Sichuan returning to the province that he had taught in in the 1990s, made famous by his book Rivertown. It, one of the differences that he he sees and he wrote about in teaching in in this in this area now versus 20 years ago, 30, you know, almost 25 years ago, that there's this concern that instructors are being possibly turned in or reported by their students for ideological problems or not necessarily being as forceful in their support of policies, patriotism, and what have you. And I, I was just kind of curious. I mean, this is, it, it seems like that, that causes kind of a, a, a possibility for a real information disconnect. And I was wondering, is this something that's overblown? Is this, is this something we're just reading about in the Western media because it confirms our suspicions about the Chinese educational system? Or is this a real thing? Fun fact about Peter Hester is that, um, you know, we, we, we're, we were good friends in Chengdu. He was, I was actually the reason why he came to Chengdu in the first place. He was actually hoping to move his family to Chongqing. He has two young girls and he wanted them to uh, learn Chinese. And he wanted to write a sequel to River Town. So he wanted to go to Chongqing. He calls me up because I'm in Chengdu and he knows I work in the public school system. And he asked me about the Chongqing public school system, what it's like, how to get in. I told him, listen, uh, you, you just come to Chengdu because we have the best public school system in, in China. And he, he believed me, and, and, that, and that's how he got to, um, to Chengdu. Peter, Peter and I uh, were in Chengdu together for, for, for two years. You asked this question, is this system of um, political indoctrination where students are asked to monitor the speech and behavior of teachers in the classroom, um, you know, which Peter Hester in his recent New Yorker piece, he wrote very eloquently about. Um, is it real? Um, and, and the problem is that it is very much real. And I would say that underneath all this, and it's hard for Westerners to understand, is that there's really a war for the soul of China right now in the school system. Chinese policymakers really believe that if you just let things be, uh, because we live in the age of the internet, if you just because we live in an age of globalization, American values, because they're so appealing to young people, they're gonna win out. And so it's really important to fight this war because it's, it's really for the soul of China. If we don't fight this war, then China will just end up, end up as a de facto um, colony of the United States. And so kids in, in primary school, I mean, they're taught that, you know, if you see a foreigner saying something unpatriotic, then report that person. If, if your parents say anything unpatriotic, then you need to report your parents. So unfortunately, this is just the culture and the climate that teachers find themselves in. It's not just Peter Hessler. It's not just foreign teachers. Chinese teachers are also being reported. Because we are in a period where the government really wants equity in the school system, parents are also encouraged to complain or report if they see 
teachers tutor on the side. And a lot of teachers have been thrown in jail because they've been tutoring on the side. So right now, there's this real culture of fear and intimidation in the um, Chinese public school system. And we only believe that this will get worse. And it's terrible for learning because, you know, I teach, um, and Peter Hesley did mention this um, quite a lot in his article. But, you know, teaching, it's a process of exploration between students and, 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 and a teacher. And kids don't explore when they're afraid. And teachers are, don't ask questions when, when they're afraid. So I feel that this culture of fear and intimidation, I mean, it, it's really damping the enthusiasm for education here in China. This is very disturbing because it's so reminiscent of the, the kind of unleashing the power of the youth in, in, in what Mao did with the Red Guards. I mean, it was the same thing. You have, the, you have permission to criticize your elders now, your teachers. You can report them. And it seems like a very retrograde thing. But also, I see sort of, also sort of strange or disturbing resonances with political correctness that, that's, that's getting, got so much attention now in the West and on American university campuses, you know, they, they use the word cancel culture. But I mean, you know, if you're reporting your teacher or your parent for saying something that's, or, or worshiping foreign things or something, that's, that's sort of cancel culture. You know, it's a way of giving the kids power over the teachers or something on the basis of, of this newfound ideological purity or whatever it is, right? It seems to me that for, from the Western point of view, very often the, the, the advantage of the Chinese system was that there wasn't so much of this BS there polluting everything. It was mostly just about the hard scientists, science, sciences, mathematics, STEM courses, and, and other things which you know, Chinese students excelled at this stuff and they went out in the world as being the most outstanding students. It seems like this is not only risking what, what you just talked about, but it's also risking attenuating what has been seen as one of the strength of, strengths of the Chinese educational system in the past. It's diluting the, this, the, this, this, yodia, this, uh, this advantage or this, this positive aspect. No, I, I agree with you, David. It seems like what's happening in China is very similar to cancel culture in the United States. I've heard people say that America right now is facing a cultural revolution and that China is facing the second cultural revolution. And you're right in that it is going to hurt innovation and progress and science in China. But at the same time, I mean, I have to, I have to harp on this point. China feels it is fighting a war for the soul of its civilization. So Chinese values take precedent over everything else. So maybe in the West, we believe very strongly in the ideas of truth and creativity. But here in China, people believe in the importance of balance and harmony. And the reality is that these 20 years of economic reform have created a lot of imbalance and discord in China. You have a lot of debt. You have a lot of inequality. You have a lot of corruption. You have a lot of pollution. You ask yourself, given the trajectory of all this, how sustainable is China's economic growth? And you can make the argument that because of China's demographic crisis, um, you now have a lot more old people than you have young people, and young people refuse to have children. This is not sustainable. In which case, what's your fallback option? Well, your fallback op option is to remind people that they're part of a larger civilization that's been around for 5,000 years, and it's the civilization that gives you hope, purpose, and meaning in life. And that's why, where China is progressing. So I agree with you that this, in the long term, will hurt China's technological innovation. But I don't think China right now is a concern because it is facing a series of crises and it needs to uh, remind people of the importance of Chinese civilization in order to keep this country united. One of the things you mentioned was the demographics. And of course, 
in terms of economic development, one of the real challenges facing the Chinese government and economic planners is the possibility of a labor, labor shortage and also the decline of a you know, working age population. And so there's been a, a renewed emphasis on vocational training, including a new law that was passed on May 1st of this year. Do you think that law is going to, is it a, is it a, is a stopgap solution or is this the first step in a, a larger project to try to uh, mitigate some of the demographic challenges facing uh, China, especially in regards to the labor, the labor market? So I think in Chinese education for the, um, in you know, the past 30 years, I think the biggest mistake that China made was to de-emphasize the vocational sector. And this happened um, at the end of the 90s when Jiang Zemin visited Peking University. Um, this was May 4th, 1998. And at that date, he announced the 985 project, which is that China would be, because it's joining WTO, it would be creating a meritocracy in its uh, school system. So the 985 project was to take the 10 best universities in China, including Peking and Tsinghua, invest billions of dollars into them and make them into world-class universities so they could, they could be competitive against Harvard and Oxford. And that was the grand vision for China's education system. <laughs> And uh, this is the this was was a creation, the birth of the Chinese meritocracy, and this was also the reason why the Chinese school system became what it is today, which is um, you know this heavy focus on examinations and test scores and results at the cost of the curiosity, the the um, and the childhood of of children. So it, so it's been a disaster for this country. Now the irony is that before the 98 project. In the 80s, China had a very good had a very good public school system, and the sort of touchstone of the school system was the vocational sector. So China um, was coming out of the Cultural Revolution. It needed workers. It needed skilled people for the export economy, and so China encouraged everyone to apply to these vocational schools. And because there was so much prestige wrapped around vocational. Colleges. Remember, back in the 1980s, China was an iron rice bowl system. It wanted to be a socialist paradise, right? There was, so, there was so much prestige behind the idea of being an industrial worker. Basically, the best students wanted to go to uh, vocational colleges, and vocational colleges were very strong. You can, make, you can make the argument that vocational colleges were, at the end of the day, uh, what enabled China to become the export powerhouse that it is today. The great tragedy was that rather than build on the system, meaning make it more like the German model, and slowly move these workers up that technological ladder um, so that they become engineers, China just decided to throw away this model and adopt the American model of a meritocracy, you know, like top top 10 colleges, everyone's trying to get into them, millions trying to, to get in, into the system. So vocational colleges, I, I mean, it's a recognition that the 98 project was a tragic mistake, and it's created severe imbalances in the Chinese economy. And because of this demographic crisis, it needs to focus more on vocational sector training. And I'm, I personally believe that this is the right decision. I, be, I am very supportive of this, this decision. And I hope in the future, China moves from a um, system of doors and gateways into a system of ladders. And what I mean by that is a system of doors and gateways is the meritocracy, right? So everyone's trying to get into the door of these elite colleges. And that's why they're pushing each other away. You know, there's so much stress and anxiety. And I believe that a system of ladders is what, is what China needs, where you have a finished model of pre-K education so that everyone starts off about the same. You have, like, you have a German model of vocational training, 
Uh, so China is producing a lot of skilled craftsmen. You have an American model of community colleges so that while they're working, they're constantly upgrading their skill set. So that's what I hope is the future of Chinese education. When people ask me the difference between the U.S. higher educational system and the Chinese higher educational system, obviously there are considerable differences. But I also think, too, that while the U.S. does have this model of gates and prestige colleges, when I'm talking to when I'm talking to people who are thinking of sending their kids to school in the U.S., I feel like if you go, obviously there are the Harvards and whatever, but it depends on what you're studying and where you're most comfortable. Like a student or a student who wants to, for example, say a student wants to study veterinary medicine, they're better off going to a school like, for example, University of California at Davis, go Aggies, than necessarily going to like a, a school that doesn't necessarily have that program. And one of the things I see in China is that because of the emphasis on making the top universities here world elite universities, it's created this kind of feeling among a lot of parents. And, and parents, tell me if I'm wrong, that if you don't get your kids into those like top three, four, five, six, seven schools, the drop off from that school to the next level is so precipitous. In the U.S., the rankings, yeah, there's rankings, but it's like a more of a gentle slope, whereas in China, it kind of is up here and it goes off a cliff. And I, I think your point about like kind of the why that would affect social anxiety, you know, this idea that the middle class, if there's a, a feeling that in some countries where you really want your children to get ahead, a much more powerful motivation and, and perhaps a more destructive one is the fear of being left behind or the fear of not making it into that, as you said, that door, that gate. And it has to have, I mean, it must have a real effect on not just the educational system, but family dynamics, childhood development, and a whole host of things that are really important for nurturing you know, a healthy development of young people. Yeah, so, so yeah, that's, that's a great point. So um, in China, we have a strict hierarchy of schools, right? So the 985 schools are at the very top. And then below them are what we call the 211 schools. And then below them are, are another t- tier of schools. And so these schools are a strict hierarchy. And everyone's trying to get into Peking and Tsinghua, wh- which are considered the top two of, um, of, of, this, of this hierarchy. And unfortunately, what's happened is that even though Chinese students are going abroad to the United States, they, de- they still transfer this mentality of a strict hierarchy onto the U.S. system. So the Ivy League is considered at the very top, and then below them are the top 50 U.S. schools. And, you know, in the United States, we all know that the U.S. news and ranking system, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's just a promotional device. Chinese <coughs> parents, for whatever reason, believe that the U.S. news and world ranking system is government-sanctioned, it's scientific, and it's foolproof. So everyone's trying to get into these top 50 schools, and no one cares, like, what is it that my kid is interested in studying and what will lead to a good and prosperous life? No one cares about that, that, that in China. So the word we have for this in China, which has been uh, coined recently, is called uh, involution, neijuan. Okay? And the idea is, okay, so the idea of neijuan is this. Imagine a treadmill that goes faster and faster. So basically, you're working harder and harder just to stay where you are. And that's a situation that most middle-class families find themselves in because of, of economic competition in China. Families find that they have to work so much harder just to stay middle-class. You know, poverty was just, a gen- was just a generation ago, so people remember what poverty was like. So the middle-class right now, you know, they, they feel that they have to fight tooth and nail just to stay middle-class and make sure that their p- kids don't become poor. 
And it's um, unfortunate because this is self-destructive. This is counterproductive, right? I mean, if you want your kid to prosper, you want your kid to have a deep sense of his or her own interests. You, you want the child to enjoy learning. You want the child to enjoy reading. But because you have the system in place, which just focuses on test scores, getting into the top-ranked schools, Kids hate learning, they become emotionally distraught, they become depressed, they become angry, and often at times, they just fell out of the system, they burn out. Which was the university, was it Tsinghua, that they decided to just take it off of, of the international ranking of schools? and not, Oh, People's University, Ren, Renda, yeah. What's, what's that all about? Why did that, because that goes against sort of, uh, is it because that for face reasons, they weren't ever going to make it into the top? Tier or, or what was the reason for that? Uh, you know, again, I, I think this goes back to, to the war for the soul of the Chinese nation. And it's really a question of, like, what China wants to be. And so China, for the past 20, 30 years, I mean, it tried to be America. It tried very hard to aspire to be America in many different aspects, right? That's why China allowed so many American corporations to come in, in, into this country that's why China hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics. That, that's why so many Chinese students go to America. And that's why so many Chinese universities partner with American institutions. China is trying to be America. And this hasn't really led to much success because it's very hard for China to emulate America because these are very different countries with different demographics, with different strengths. So what China is now recognizing is we need to focus on what makes us strong. And we cannot compare ourselves constantly with, with others because, honestly, these world university rankings, China will never reach the top. China right. doesn't have the culture, doesn't have the uh, te technological innovation. What I, what, I, what I like to say is that the major difference between China and the West is that China never went through the Sunday Revolution. That hundred years that radically transformed Europe from a feudal society into a modern industrial society. China never went through that. So China doesn't have concepts like truth, progress, creativity, which drives innovation. And I think that the Chinese leadership has just recognized this. China is just saying, let's go our own, own way. You've talked a couple of times about this kind of war for the soul of China and this idea that for a long time, for a recent, up until recently, China's been trying to beat America at America's own game, but that also has led to problems because, of course, if you're playing the game according to the rules of your strategic competitor adversary, it's almost impossible to always catch up because you're playing their game. But I also think, too, that I, I agree with you that one of the things I've noticed in my time here has been a, a fixation on this idea of an ideological war that uh, it does seem like many of China's top leaders, especially, do feel like they are besieged. And whether you want to phrase it in terms of Western hegemony or in terms of things like when you when you try to present alternative facts and then they get busted in the international media because the stuff that you're saying is so clearly untrue, it causes problems. Regardless of the the situation, this ideological war makes me wonder, though, are there people inside the educational establishment, inside the Chinese government, who are, I guess, fighting a rear guard action, who are, who are still kind of like, you know, wait a second, we, we get the idea that there's a, there's a hegemonic influence on our country. We're not ignoring that, but we also feel like there still is room for educational exchanges, international education, cosmopolitanism, and that this kind of turn inward is actually going to hurt ultimately our goal of self-sufficiency. We don't have to play the game according to America's rules, 
but surely we still need to be part of the world. Is there, is there, is there anyone fighting the uh, other side, or, or I mean, fighting is the wrong word, speaking up for the other side within the establishment? Um, yeah, it's, it's called Shanghai. And uh, we know what's been happening in Shanghai for the past two months. I think another word, another way to phrase the war for the soul of China is to say that it's really a war on China's middle class. Because if you think about it, um, it's really engagement with the global economy that has created China's middle class. It's a very strong, vibrant middle class that believes in international exchange, that believes in the importance of openness and in, in engagement. But at the same time, um, you can also make the argument that the middle class for the past 20 or 30 years has tried to monopolize the school system. It has skewed education rankings. It has skewed education priorities so that, that their children benefit, leaving everyone else behind. Um, for example, there's this huge emphasis on, on tests, right, on academic success. Well, guess who benefits um, under the system? It's usually children whose parents went to university themselves, which is a very small minority, and who are also happen to be the, the middle class. You can make the argument that these two years of all these crackdowns, right, on the tech sector, on the financial sector, on the real estate sector, on the education sector, it's really trying to make China a much more equitable place and trying to lessen the power and influence of the middle class. I know that Jeremiah and I are on the, basically on the same page about this, which is that we've, we really value education and we, have, and we certainly value the agenda of having Americans come here to China to study, work, live here, see what it's like, and learn firsthand. And as, as we all know, since COVID and then all these other uh, international, these, these geopolitical problems, that's, in, in, had, that's been endangered, definitely. Th its future is very much uncertain, at least it's pretty clear we're not going to go back to the old normal. What I'm wondering from you, you've had a lot of experience and I've, and I've uh, you know, involved you in a lot of these cross-cultural educational uh, you know, learning experiences. What would you have as advice for us? I know you're not a prophet or a seer. You can't see what's going to happen. Definitely, the th changes have been made and are going to continue to be made. What would you suggest for people like us that, that, that feel that there's an educational information imbalance and if we don't get lots more Americans here studying getting invested in this place and meeting you know, one-on-one -on -one with Chinese people, that we're going to be in trouble dealing with China later on because we're going to be our hands tied behind our back, blindfolded, not knowing how to handle this country. Do you have any advice for us how to move forward? And in keeping with Jeremiah's question, it's, is there is there a underground source of goodwill among academia say, saying people who, who confirm this this uh, goal and say, yes, we do need to keep this uh, bilateral ac academic exchange going. Is, 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 there some, is there some hope on the horizon for people like us? First of all, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it wasn't Chinese policymakers who initiate this disengagement, right? This, de this decoupling. It was, it was the Americans who initiated all yeah. this cultural and education de decoupling, right? It was started under Bush. I'm sorry. Trump and Trump. Under Trump in 2016. Uh, you know, Trump canceled a lot of these cultural and education exchanges like the Peace Corps, uh, the, Ful the Fulbright. So it's really the Americans and the Chinese just retaliated and responded, right? Um, uh -huh. Americans who kicked out um, who canceled the visas of certain uh, of, of certain Chinese journalists, and the um, Chinese responded by um, kicking out the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Chinese policymakers would say, it's not really us. We want engagement. We want to learn from America. We want to share our, our experiences and our expertise with each other. But it's really the Americans who are now, in, in many ways, weaponizing the global trade system in order to constrain China's economic growth. 
I mean, like that's that's how Chinese policymakers see the big picture. That um, it started under Trump, but Biden is very much continuing this policy of weaponizing global trade in order to constrain China's economic growth and rise. And if China does not become self-sufficient, then Chinese economy will be much will, will be very much hampered. I think that Chinese are very much interested in engagement with America. But I also think that um, we've reached a point where Chinese feel that uh, America and China should be peers and that there sh- it, sh- it should be based on an equal uh, policy of mutual respect. And, and so I feel that if, if American institutions came in with this attitude that we're here to engage China, to learn from China, and not just like, you know, we're here to teach China because China's uncivilized and we're here to make as much money as possible because Chinese are rich, then, then I think that will lead to uh, much more constructive engagement. But given uh, the politics in America right now, uh, given the political polarization, given the fact that um, there's so much America first ideology right now in America, I don't think that's very likely. But, 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 but I would start there. I would, I, I would say that, first of all, it's very important for American institutions to recognize that it was America which started this decoupling and that China is just responding because it feels it has to. And second is that to come in with an attitude of mutual respect. It's a really good point. I think mutual respect is absolutely essential in reestablishing the relationship. And I also, I, I agree that the policies under, first under President Trump and then continued in, in many ways under the Biden administration has accelerated this process and and pushed it really to what feels like a breaking point in so many different areas. The one thing I might suggest is that, just in my experience here, is that I I think looking back even before Trump, we still saw the beginnings of an ideological decoupling on both sides. I feel like when the current Chinese administration came to power, they don't obviously campaign, but I suspect one of their campaign promises behind the scenes was things had gotten dangerously and ideologically lax under the last administration. There was too many NGOs, too many foreign scholars, too many educational programs that were unsupervised. We need to clean that up. It wasn't, I think, it wasn't a coincidence that beginning in 2012, more and more journalists stopped getting their visas renewed. Scholars had a harder time accessing China. Educational programs started to have difficulties. And then I think what happened in 2016 was that the the Trump administration for ideological reasons and also under the with the influence of some of the people who were working for the administration decided that fine if China's not going to allow x number of journalists in and they're going to have all these journalists in the US we're just going to we're going to play their game and we're going to try to like expel these journalists and we're going to do this and that 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 in a way that all I think it did was exacerbate the situation again to a breaking point and provided ample fodder for people in China who wanted to say, look, the U.S. is, you know, they do the same thing we do and they're, they're way worse about it than we are. And, you know, it's just it all that talk about how they support the global system. It's all, you know, it's all a bunch of bullshit because look what they do. You know, it's just I feel like it, it created this kind of rush to the bottom in terms of the, retali- the tit for tat retaliations that nobody is going to win. And, you know, I, I, it is something that I, I know that David and I, and I, I, I get the sense that you do too, just feel like 
we, we got to look for a way out, right? I mean, somebody's got to st- like somebody's got to be the grown up in the room. I mean, you know, what's done is done, but somebody's got to stand up and say, "Listen, we can't we can't completely decouple from each other." Whether it starts in the schools or ends, you know, in the political spectrum, at, at the very least, we need to kind of take a step back. And I, I mean, maybe this is a problem unsolvable by just the three of us. I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, and I think that this. The, the new era has not been particularly conducive to the kind of academic and international cooperation that I think the three of us have worked so hard for in our careers. No, no I, I, I agree. I think that these international partnerships and exchange are vitally important for both countries. But I just feel, feel that these past few years, I mean, with the coronas, coronas pandemic, um, with this recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, that this entire system of globalization is now um, under much stress and it's under much threat. So I don't know if um, either China or America now has the appetite for engagement. And, and that's, that's the reality that we are facing. I mean, both America and China is moving, are moving towards isolation, towards self-sufficiency. America will be much more uh, better at it than, than, than China. China became prosperous because of its um, uh, engagement with the world. But I just feel that that's a general trend that we'll be seeing for the next 10, 20 years. Well, Xue Qin, as long as you're here in this environment, then uh, I feel optimism. <laughs> With someone as sane and reasonable, accommodating as you, I, I think there is hope to continue this uh, situation. And so thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely fantastic, very informative. But, I, but just remind you, I am on my best behavior right now, so... <laughs> Okay, we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we appreciate the behavior. and We also appreciate your insights. It, it was a, a really fascinating conversation. I really hope we can have you on again very, very soon. Thank you, and uh, good luck with the rest of the school year. Thank you. Bye-bye. Whenever you want to kind of look to where our society's going, one of the first places to look is always you know, the schools. And it's something that scares the hell out of me when I look into the U.S. and I see you know, we talk about teachers being reported, but teachers being hauled before school boards for talking about LGBTQ issues in the classroom, or you happen to mention that, oh, I don't know, in the United States made an entire group of people work for free for several centuries. Suddenly they're accused of teaching critical race theory, which frankly isn't a crime. And they're, you know, facing challenges from parents at school board meetings. And, you know, these issues that are affecting the U.S. educational system are worrisome. But of course, when I look at the Chinese educational system and I see the ideology, you know, going on here, it's, it's, it's equally scary. And I think one of the one of the things that really concerns me about what's happening is the extent to which the educational system here engages in an active project of othering. But people in China, Chinese students, are special because they are Chinese. Great. And that, but that they are, that everybody else is different from them. There's not this idea that we share commonalities around the world. And I've even noticed that. I mean, this is a small sample size, but I've noticed it too in my interaction with the, you know, with parents and kids who I, you know, who are our neighbors. Children these days are, you know, kids will say the darndest things, but sometimes the kids are like, you know, they're like, you know, you, sell, you tell them you're American, like, oh, my teacher said you guys are terrible. And you're like, well, okay, you know, I don't think I'm that terrible, but that that's concerning. And the same way that it concerns me that there are, you know, in the U.S. trends, that are kind of emphasizing America first or, for lack of a better term, patriotic education. Yeah, it's sort of a shame that uh, 
in in both of these countries, which which you know, by the way, come from have great educational heritages and also a lot of uh, important uh, you know trajectories. These these people are going to graduate and go out in the world and have to solve a lot of big problems that we baby boomers weren't able to solve. But it is kind of sad that that in both countries we have this uh, education being sort of a battleground where where some of these political battles are being fought. And then in the Chinese case, geopolitical battles. Uh, but in our case, uh, internal left right squabbles are being uh, you know worked out and and combated here in the classroom. This all added to the COVID disaster, people, you know, kids not actually being able to interact with their students and the teachers. This is a big problem because we're not going to see this right away. But but in the few years when these people are out in the world and they're the ones, you know, taking charge, taking the reins, there's a lot of people who are shell-shocked, ill-equipped, probably having emotional problems, haven't grown up with the same kind of advantages that, that, that I certainly did growing up in the idyllic leave it to beaver 50s and 60s you know i certainly didn't have to go through the things that my daughter has gone through so it is sad it is extremely sad but i thought uh general Chin had a lot of good insights into um you know what's at the heart of the problem right now and i think the problem is the reason it's education is such a battleground is in fact it is the nexus of of so many of these struggles uh you know if you want to make a big political change you the, you know you have to start with the schools one thing we didn't get a chance to talk to Shuichin uh, about that I, I think maybe would be best, it'd be really good if we could perhaps um, for a, 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 an upcoming episode, you know, while there are still foreign teachers in China to interview, we might want to invite on somebody um, from one of the, the, the schools here, especially the international schools, because, uh, you know, with the current, you know, the, the exodus of um, international residents, one of the hardest hit sectors is going to be the international educational system. Uh, I should say this, this, this school, the international school system. And that has knock-on effects um, for recruiting um, fam- you know, uh, executives or, or personnel from overseas because, of course, if the schools, there aren't schools here for the kids, people aren't likely to come. So I think one of the things I, I'd like to do in an upcoming podcast is talk to somebody from the international school and to kind of get their sense of like is, you know, what's going to happen in, in September? Are the schools are the schools opening? And uh, if they are, what what's that going to look like? I think that's a great idea. And we're, we're in the place for that because we're in the capital here. And there's a lot of very, very important international schools that are going to be suffering in the fall. That's, that's for sure. And in fact, any subject for the podcast, uh, we welcome suggestions from our listeners. A, t- a topic or a subject matter you want to see us explore, we'd, we'd be glad to take it into consideration. Absolutely. You can always find David or I on Twitter. I'm at Jeremiah Jenny. And David, what's your Twitter handle? I'm at David double underscore Moser. So send us a note, send us a email, send us a, a tweet. Uh, we're always happy to talk about any issues that you'd like to talk about. Also, it's always nice to get mail that doesn't start off with, Dear podcast owner, your website has three typos in it, and for a low, low fee, we'll be happy to increase your social media profile. <laughs> well, it is almost three o'clock here in Beijing, which you know means that I have to go downstairs and get my throat swabbed with a Q-tip because that's what we do. Me too. David, me, stay me too. green, stay frosty. But thank you. Thank you very much. All right, Jeremiah. Yeah, stay safe and see you next week.